This message is brought to you by Cornerstone Gospel Church in Frankston, Australia. I really enjoy Thessalonians. It's a wonderful letter to read um, and it has a great deal to teach us. Um, and one of the one of the great things about um, Thessalonians is that you get to see a little bit about the church at, in Thessalonica or Thessaloniki, as I, I think it's known in this day and age, uh, and it probably was something like that then. Uh, you get to know a little bit out of it uh, about it from the Book of Acts and. That's really good for us because it shows us about the um, expansion of the gospel into the regions beyond Jerusalem and Judea and then some area um, and then into other areas. And so Paul wrote the letter to the Thessalonians um, to relatively new believers in the faith to exhort them to godly living, uh, to give them assurance about eternal life and especially the state of those who had died uh, and had moved on from this life, and also to defend his ministry and the ministry of the apostles um, because it was under constant attack at that stage. And that forms a little bit of the background for us. Just as a matter of um, some of the other issues, um, Thessalonica was the capital of Roman Macedonia. This region, Macedonia, as we know today, and uh, you know, just right alongside Greece, important in the trade routes of its time. The Roman Empire uh, was strengthened and. Uh, built up on its trade routes that it had established and road networks, etc., etc., that it had established. And Paul uh, visited Thessalonica on his second missionary journey, but he was forced to flee because of Jewish opposition, and we'll see that in just a moment. And so uh, let's move on into the passage before us. Now, the approach that we'll take as we go through Thessalonians is to look at it largely in an expository manner, so we'll allow the verses to unlock themselves and see them as they uh, correlate to other passages of Scripture, uh, such as today, Acts chapter 17, which will give us some insight into uh, 1 Thessalonians. Let's read the entire chapter. It's huge. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and our Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you 
because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you? For your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for this record in Scripture. Uh, Lord God, as we look into it this morning, open our hearts, open our minds, Lord, open our eyes to see that which you're teaching us. Lord, let your spirit have full rule and reign in our hearts this morning to guide us from the instruction contained in your word, that we might not stray from it. We praise you and we thank you in the mighty name of your son. Amen. Hallelujah. So, we said before that this uh, is a major uh, industrial centre, oh we didn't say this, but it was a major industrial centre, the the area of Thessalonica, and um, I'm just going to change a little bit of the zoom here, sorry, so trying to concentrate on two things at once, uh, because it's myth that people can't actually multitask, and so um, I know that the ladies among us think they can multitask, but you can't. So um, it's not it's not true. Uh, but anyway, that's another story. So is a a major uh, industrial centre, and it was a large population centre in its time, and uh, it was even a a important area during World War Two. Germans gained control, and uh, they deported from that region many, many Jewish people uh, for extermination from that area. The population at the time of Paul was around uh, around about 200,000. So this was a, a large city of its day. And it was a trading city on these trading routes. And so that would bring in uh, much wealth and it would bring with it uh, exposure to different cultures and you know that had has <coughs> positives and negatives with it as we see in the world today with lots of migration of people into various different countries that has that brings with it as as well as some blessings as people say it can bring with it many problems now I believe that this might have been part of the attraction for Paul is that he could go to a place like Thessalonica and if they could get a church established that from that place the gospel can spread out and he gives an indication that that actually happened in the text here as he says that the word of God went out from among them. And so 
part of the reason for that is that this was one of those cities at the crossroads, so to speak. It was on the trading route, and so if it makes sense logistically to go in there with the gospel because from there, if you can get disciples established, the gospel can go out uh, to other places and maybe even in, in those times... You know, this is not like driving from here to Sydney and maybe you're going to do an overnight at Albury and you and I can jump in the car, we can drive to Albury, we're there in four and a half, five hours and uh, we can sleep overnight, we're refreshed, the next morning we can go and barely see a soul. In in the Bible times, when you would travel and you went through a city, you, you might end up spending uh, weeks or months there, uh, depending on the urgency of your trip that you're taking you would definitely spend a number of days just to refresh and maybe do some trading and various different kinds of things. And so this was one of these areas in which if you can get the gospel established, you can use that as a hub to spread the gospel out further. This is a common sense approach to the preaching of the gospel and the establishing of churches in its time. So Paul often did go through large population centres in order to try and establish churches and uh, and then so that from those churches they could reach out to the surrounding areas. Acts chapter 17. Turn over to there. Acts chapter 17. The book of Acts is uh, a wonderful record for us and um, people say you don't establish doctrine from the book of Acts, but you can see doctrine being established in the church through the book of Acts and uh, and how they responded to situations and dealt with situations. You can see it in the book of Acts. Verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. As I mentioned before, uh, the Jewish population deported uh, under the Nazis for a long time. There was a, a Jewish population in Thessalonica, even right back in the time of Paul, such a, a strong concentration of Jews that they had their own synagogue in that uh, city. Verse 2, and when Paul, and Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ or for the Messiah to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Messiah. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So, It's interesting to note that Paul, as part of his heritage, and the scripture says that this was a custom of his, that he would go into the synagogue and there he would reason with these Jewish, or with these Jews. And he would discuss things from the scripture with them. And 
this is an interesting thing to note because this is how Paul functioned uh, in his ministry is that he sought out these people and he specifically went there on the Sabbath day so that the scrolls could be open and they could be reasoned from and they could be discussed and they could be explained. And he was doing this as an approach to try and convince these people of the reality of the Messiah. And in fact, our text says... Uh, in verse 3, at the end of verse 2, on the Sabbath day he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim is the Messiah. He is the Messiah. He's using very specific and definite language with them. And this is important for, for us to remember um, because Paul was not someone who would just come along with some airy-fairy gospel message, but Paul was bringing to them a solid reasoning from the scriptures concerning the Messiah who they were looking for. Now the word reasoning uh, used in the close of verse 2, on the Sabbath day he reasoned with them. The word reasoning is the word dialegami. Uh, You can see the word dialogue hidden in, or you can hear it in that word. Acts 17 verse 2 says he reasoned with them or he dialogued with them. And this involved a an approach of question and answer to to seed people with with questions that they have to answer what do you uh, ha, what do you see in the text here about the messiah and so he was pulling this out of them and then trying to convince them the messiah you're looking for in this these texts is the messiah Jesus he's the one this word means to select distinguish and discuss so Paul is not using an, uh, a haphazard kind of approach here to evangelizing. He's, he's, gone, he's gone into the synagogue with a very deliberate approach to convince people about the reality of the promised Messiah. And so when they're opening the scriptures and discussing them, they're talking from the Old Testament. The New Testament is not written at this stage. So Paul is <coughs> he's reasoning with them from the Old Testament scriptures. And he's saying the one you're looking for is the one Jesus you've heard about. He was the Messiah. So this word can have a meaning of pondering, resolving in one's mind. But if you take it in the dialogue sense here, it is an attempt to convince somebody in their mind. That's what it's doing. That Paul is trying to argue the case for Christ in these people's lives. Literally, by means of speech. That's the word dialegami, the the section of the word lego, not blocks, uh, means uh, speech. That he's trying to use the opportunity for language and argumentation taking place and is reasoning with them from the scriptures. So, you know, if there is a problem with some of the modern day parachurch ministries that try and convince Christians about the reasonableness of their faith and various things, sometimes it's because they don't argue the case from scripture and they want to argue it purely from science. I'm not saying that's wrong, but um, what I'm saying is that we should firstly find our faith nestled in the strength of scripture. 
And then we take those things as a backup or an addition, strengthening the argument of Scripture. Now, also one of the words that the book of Acts uses, Luke uses in Acts in verse 3. Uh, so the end of verse 2, on the th- Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving. Explaining and proving. The word explaining, dianoigo, and for sure, I've got that pronounced wrong. I, I think it's something like dianigo or dianoigo. Um, the word explaining, it carries a particular meaning in the King James that is really um, uh, brings with it this idea of opening up the scriptures to them, opening it up. And that's the meaning of this word, to open, to expound, uh, to open the mind. So Paul is trying to reason with them in such a way that he's trying to open their mind to the person of Jesus. This is what he's trying to do. He's taking time to open the scripture with them and he went back three consecutive weeks in a row to reason with them in order to try and open their minds to what the scripture says about the Messiah and thus prove that that Messiah promised in scripture was represented in the person of Jesus, the Messiah. And then proving, well, this is an interesting word because from the Greek, this is paratithemi and it means to place beside. And what it literally means is that Paul laid out a logical argument to them. He laid out a logical argument to them. He wasn't hiding things. It's a bit sad, I think, in Christianity that often when we feel we we maybe don't have the depth of knowledge in, in a circumstance, we, we tell someone, you know, we, we rely on Christian cliches. You just have to take the leap of faith. Now, I'm not criticizing faith because no one is saved apart from faith, right? But if we're doing that because we are not deepening our understanding of theological lessons, uh, for example, if you want to work among Jewish believers, you, you need to, uh, among Jewish non-believers, you need to get to know that Old Testament. You're going to have to get to know certain portions of scripture where you can point them to the Messiah and show that this was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And so it's not enough just to say to people, just believe in Jesus. This is the problem of the modern day altar call, that the modern day altar call focuses on a very surface level uh, description of you and I as sinners. And if you want to be forgiven and go to heaven, Just ask Jesus into your heart now. And so there is an absence of teaching anything deep or meaningful about the nature of sin and why sin separates us from the Father. There is an absence of teaching anything deep and meaningful about the person of Jesus and why his death uh, on the cross satisfied the Father and can substitute 
in his suffering can substitute in the place of man who must suffer for his sins apart from Jesus Christ. There's an absence of laying any foundation of what true faith is, uh, of what repentance is. And as a result, people are enticed into Christianity by a message that says, give your life to Jesus and he'll give you eternal life and you'll have love, joy, peace and happiness. And uh, you'll get to experience all of these wonderful things. Look at what Jesus did for me. And most of that kind of gospel message is appealing to people on a very shallow level. And it doesn't then strike at the heart of what repentance truly is and what true faith really is. This is not the way that Paul approached the the presentation of the gospel to the Thessalonians. And uh, Acts and 1 Thessalonians come together to give us this representation and to show us how Paul... Uh, reasoned with them and how he was trying to uh, prove to them uh, and how he was trying to explain to them the dialogue uh, and the explanation and then the laying out of a logical argument. Paul was not hiding things. So Paul reasoned with them about Christ. He discussed this with them. Uh, he, he was causing them to ponder. This is This is You know, my first pastor used to say that evangelism is about planting seeds, not trying to plant a whole tree. I think it was um, A.W. Tozer that used to say that witnessing is about bite-sized portions of truth. And, you know, these are really important principles because so many times we get involved in in a witnessing encounter or, or we meet someone and, and we, we want to see them get saved. And so then we're trying to, we're trying to convert them there and then. Uh, I'm not saying that, that that's wrong, but I'm saying that sometimes as a result, we can be, uh, erring in the way that we present the gospel to people because we're trying to get the result rather than trying to plant a seed. Jesus, makes it very clear in the parable of the soils that uh, into the soil of the human heart was planted seed. And the seed was the word of God. And we have to trust that God knows what he's doing with human hearts and believe that if we're faithful with the planting of the seed, God will be faithful in bringing forth a crop, a harvest out of that seed. So what are some of the things we can learn Initially, well, some things we can learn is that it's quite possible that Paul spent quite a short time in Thessalonica. Chapter 17, verse 2 in Acts says that, uh, and Paul went in, as was his custom, on three Sabbath days uh, and reasoned with them from the Scriptures. If Paul had been there from for a year, it's possible the text might say, and for many weeks, Paul went in and reasoned with them. Now, maybe he was there longer and they didn't permit him to come back. Uh, but, you know, so the text doesn't conclude that this was all the time Paul spent. But it does say that for three particular weeks that he went in there and he ministered and he was trying to convince them. Now, we also know that persecution led to uh, Paul uh, uh, to leave Timothy and Silas in Berea and to teach the churches. So we can learn that God has 
purposes for people. So the timeline was limited. And God has purposes for people. You know, when we lived in Macau, we discovered that oftentimes when you went into mainland China, and especially for the mainland Chinese, there was sometimes only very small amount of work that you could do on a very limited time because you couldn't you couldn't be there all the time uh, for various different reasons. One is it exposed the locals to speculation uh, because you're a foreigner walking around. You stand out because you, you're taller than the local people. Your skin colour is different, you know. The, the, the hilarious thing that we um, learned when we first went to Macau is that the Chinese say, you Westerners all look the same. And um, so that was... That was funny because that's what we think about the Chinese until you've lived there for a while. And, uh, you know, we used to think the same thing. You know, you Chinese all look the same. And um, and so, but we, we had to employ different strategies. And the strategy that became the most successful for us in the work in Macau was that uh, it was best that we didn't go into the mainland at all but we had some disciples and their wives who were able to travel in into Macau, uh, into mainland China regularly because at that stage Macau was still un, under the Portuguese government and they were able to go in and minister freely in the house churches there without anybody wondering what this Chinese person was doing because they were Chinese amongst their, their own people. And so it became a great opportunity uh, for them. So... Um, in Acts uh, chapter, chapter 17, you can see in verse 4, And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. Verse 5, But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Uh, I, I love that verse because it tells you something about the power of the gospel in those days, that the word had been spreading, that these Christians were were a force to be reckoned with, so much so that the description by the local Jews, the synagogue attending Jews, was that these men who have turned the world upside down, this is not a positive thing from their viewpoint, but it's an awesomely positive thing from the Christian viewpoint, I think, to see that the gospel had rearranged everything as such. And so uh, these men... Uh, who have turned the world upside down, have come here also. Verse 7, And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus, another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security or a bond uh, from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. So there he goes again. 
uh, into the Jewish synagogue um, and continuing his work. This is the pattern of Paul. It makes sense that Paul would do that. And, you know, when, when we went to Macau, we didn't speak Cantonese. So we had to go and find English-speaking people. And that seems a bit um, uh, counterintuitive. You go to a foreign country and instead of being able to speak the local language, uh, you know, if God's putting a calling on your heart, start learning the language. It will help you. But we just had to do what we could do. And so eventually we, we uh, um, saw a, a, um, a young lady get saved uh, who became the main interpreter of the church. She was not just any interpreter, this girl. Like, she was anointed, you know. She had a gift for interpretation and translation. They're two different things. One's spoken, one's written. And um, and she was amazing. So much so that we had a trained, a government-trained interpreter who attended our church who just sat in awe of how uh, skillful this young lady was. What a blessing to the church she was. That's how we began, by following the same kind of pattern, looking for people that we could communicate with, looking for people that we could reason with and and discuss the gospel with. That's how it works. So we can learn in this, in 1 Thessalonians and in Acts chapter 17, that God has purposes for people. And I would be pretty sure that Paul after just a matter of weeks, that he would be wanting to stay with those people who are being converted and start taking them through the Apostles' Doctrine, start teaching them uh, more and and deepening their roots in foundational doctrines and, and growing them in that way. I'd be pretty sure that that would be the case, uh, that Paul would desire that. But instead, the local disciples there said, you need to go out of town your safety is, is at stake here. And they saw a purpose in moving Paul on, uh, which evidently he didn't argue with, uh, and he went on and he continued to preach the gospel. And this shows us something. Evangelism and or discipleship are not the sole domain of a gifted few. This is really important for us to understand that it's, you know, Paul was moved out of town. Here's this man who's gone into the city and as a result of his efforts and his labours, there's a church being established and he's been moved on, but the work continues and we know the work continues because the letters of First and Second Thessalonians are evidence that a body of people continued to be there. And so the works of evangelism and the work works of evangelism and discipleship uh, discipleship are the domain of the saints of God. That's our job. You and I, beloved, that we would evangelize and that we would then make disciples. Go into the world and make disciples of all men. We can see that the gospel does produce results. Now, 
little hesitant with that statement because we could look at things pragmatically and we could say, um, you know, we want the church to be X by the end of the year and so we will develop this program and, you know, but the gospel produces results because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And so if the church needs results, if the church needs growth, if the church needs disciples, it is tied into you and I being forceful in the spreading and, and the propagation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The church, you and I, as believers, we need to evangelize and make disciples. We don't need a church discipleship program for that. You can witness to someone and then, you know, as as they get saved and place their faith in Jesus, sit down with them and just work through the scripture, just read the scripture and start explaining it. And you might say, but I don't know enough. I'll do that when I know more. Do that now. You'll know more. God will teach you. And teach people from the basics you do know. Because you'll find that those basics are enough for them already. Where they're at. They were enough for you when you began. Acts chapter 17 shows us that this church began in a matter of weeks. I mean, that's pretty awesome, isn't it? It began in a matter of weeks. And you can, if you read anything about evangelism and missionary societies, you can see time and time again these prayerful saints that went out into the mission field, that God's hand was on them. And some churches began really quickly. Some took a long time, but God was doing a work in those workers in order for that church then to to grow. So we can see also with this in Acts chapter 17 that... Clearly this was a work of God that was taking place, but we can see that there is opposition that comes against it. There is always going to be opposition. And when you go back into the parables of the kingdom, and I mentioned before about the parable of the soils, the the question was asked of Jesus, explain this to us, and he said to them, don't you understand this? How will you understand any of the parables about the kingdom unless you understand this? And then he unlocks the parable by giving them an understanding of what the symbols in the parable uh, parable meant. That the soil was the world of human hearts and the seed was the gospel and the bird of the air were the enemies who tried to steal the seed, etc., etc. He explains this in this way. And so the indication from that parable is that the enemy is going to try to work to steal away the effect of the gospel good news that is spread out amongst the world. That's one of the very simple things that we can see. So... In, uh, in Thessalonians, in verse 6, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. In much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Do you know a little of the, the history of the... Um, uh, Methodist evangelistic movement into Fiji 
at the time the first Methodist missionaries went there, the local Fijians, because they were cannibals, um, they killed and ate several of the first missionaries that went there. Didn't stop the Methodists, you know, Charles Wesley's guys, uh, and John Wesley's guys, they were, they were pretty intense people, you know, and so they sent more. And they sent more, and they kept sending them. And at that time, Fiji's population was 103,000, and under the evangelistic endeavours of the Methodist Church, 100,000 of the Fijians were converted to Christ in those times, in the 1800s. That's that's amazing, isn't it? That's a phenomenal thing. But this is from this endeavour to take the gospel out into the, all the world. Adrian. I don't know that to be the case. It could be. Yeah. yeah. Well, then some of those hundred thousand were not then converts if they would do that to the enemy. So. I've got a book on it. I'll have to have a, a bit, a bit more of a read. So we should love our enemies. So yeah. Yes. That sounds like a little bit like Geneva's approach. So. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, and you re- uh, uh, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Notice these two things, in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. These two things coinciding with each other, that there is affliction and persecution and joy. And this is such a wonderful indication of the true nature of conversion in this church. See, what... The enemy designs for evil against the people of God, God will use for good. And it strengthens the saints. The Jews were jealous, Acts 17 says, and took some wicked men of the rabble. I mean, it's a, it's a phenomenal description, isn't it? That these Jews went and found from the rabble, this is the troublemakers in the community, some wicked people who, who they could form into a mob and cause an uproar and then say the uproar is caused because of the preaching by these people who've turned the world upside down. They've been doing that everywhere and now they're doing it here. It's the same thing. Beloved, trust me, if you preach the gospel of Jesus and the enemy comes against you, he'll use all kinds of maliciousness to try and uh, affect your determination in spreading the gospel of Jesus. Christianity has always faced opposition and we see this in the beginning of the Thessalonian church and Paul says to them uh, that that you receive the gospel through persecution with the joy of the Holy Spirit. But in verse 6 he says, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Verse 5, Paul says to them, Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and the Holy Spirit with full conviction, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Their character was on display. Now, I want to just skip down to a last couple of thoughts that I had here. And this might open uh, a little tin of worms, which is appealing to some and not to others. Um, Go back to verse 1 in 1 Thessalonians. And I want you to think about a couple of thoughts here 
And let's just put them in a bit of context and and take a uh, a bit of a position on this. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. To the church of Jesus Christ, or to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. To the church. What is the church? The Greek word, ecclesia. What is the meaning of that? called out and it doesn't only have this meaning of called out from but it has the meaning also of called out to so we're not just called out from the world that is half of the meaning but we don't don't just get called out to them be in a place of stasis or or stagnation but we get called out then to move into something and that is to move into this realm of living uh, holy lives for the lord now This word would be tied into, this word therefore called out to the church of the Thessalonians. This would be tied into this idea of those that are chosen by God to be his people. Uh, We could call this the, the elect, we could call this. Now, this opens up a very difficult doctrine because it's not as straightforward as some people would would think that if they're called out, therefore they're the the elect, they're the chosen, and uh, and so as a result, um, those are the people God has chosen to be His children in the world, and this becomes an issue because the mystery of God's election or decision to call out a people for Himself. How do we sit that in with an obvious understanding from looking at the world and looking at scripture that man is responsible for the decisions that he makes? It is very clear that God holds you and I responsible for decisions and we would call that therefore this idea that we have freedom of will. Um, now, some people say, oh, we don't have freedom of will. You can't will anything into being, but it's a misapplication of the word will because uh, the, the meaning of those who believe in free will decision means that they have the freedom to make that decision. And it's quite a simple understanding and it's not, uh, you know, it's not this idea that we're trying, we're sitting there trying to will something to happen. But, there are important things to understand uh, with this with this concept, and we might go into it a little bit more next week. But God sent Paul and Silas to Thessalonica, and how did they reach the people? They were trying to convince them. They were reasoning with them. They were discussing with them and trying to convince them about the truth of the Messiah in the synagogues. And some people were being saved and then those people were, as a result of being saved, placed into the body of Christ, the church. And so this is important because we can't divorce these and put them in separate categories and then say, oh, therefore the, the church is comprised of those that God has simply elected by sovereignty, etc., etc. This is this mashing together of different ideas that are, that are not 
you, you can't just separate them and put them in compartments like that. The mystery, I believe, of God's election, and, and it is a little bit mysterious when it comes to the church, it's less mysterious in some other aspects, but we need to hold that in balance with this idea of man's, the calling God puts through the gospel of man to humble himself and obey the gospel in a decision of his will to repent and trust in Jesus Christ. Now, this mystery, if you want to hold to election and and holding it with this idea of free will at the same time, I think this side of eternity, we're not going to see them fully. One man asked Spurgeon how to reconcile these two truths and he said, I never try to reconcile friends. I think that's a little bit of a a cop-out because election and free will decision are both taught in Scripture, but when it comes to the church, you see that believers are elected in Christ. And this is an important thing because this comes down then to a person's response of faith in Jesus Christ and trusting the gospel that then the Holy Spirit takes them and puts them in Christ Jesus and or immerses them, baptizes them into Christ. And from that point, they are elected to be the church. As a result, it's the same with adoption, that that God adopts those who have placed faith in Jesus Christ. It's not as simple as saying that God adopts those who uh, were outcast through sin. Now, I would say on this that one way of understanding this is is that um, as far as and, and Wearsby makes this point. As far as God the Father is concerned, uh, we were saved when he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, and, and that's in Ephesians chapter 1. But as far as the Spirit is concerned, God saved us when we responded to his call through the gospel message to place faith in Jesus Christ. But as far as God the Son is concerned... And remember, salvation is a work of the triunity of the Godhead. As far as God the Son is concerned, we were saved when he died for us on the cross. But tied into this, you know, as far as the Spirit is concerned, as I mentioned before, is that gospel message. No one is saved apart from faith. And Ephesians makes it very clear that faith is an action of free will, that we place faith in Jesus Christ. So, now, how did Paul know that these people were saved? Because salvation doesn't come down to a checklist of things. Do you believe, you know, this, that and the other, you know, even devils believe and tremble, you know. There are things that can be believed by unbelievers. Paul says to them, we give thanks to God always for you all constantly, mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, labour of love and steadfastness of hope. Paul took assurance about these people 
because there was a work of faith. This was not works like Old Testament works, works of law. But these were works born out of faith. And this is what Ephesians 2 verse 10 says, that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. The good works of the Christian life are evidence of salvation. They're not achieving salvation. And so Paul calls them here to the Thessalonians. He says, these are your, there's, we're thanking God because we get to see your works of faith. The faith that have, the, the works that flow out of the faith you've placed in Jesus Christ. True Christian faith results in a changed life. And it, it may not be, it's not down to a formula, do these things and you'll be saved. No, a person who gets saved will do, they will respond to the Lord. So there were works of faith, there were labor, a labor of love. And some of you know exactly what that's like because before Jesus, your life was tied up in bitterness and anger and hatred and you came to Jesus and he changed you within. And you began being able to love people that formerly you had despised or hated. And patience of hope. The lost. Isn't it true? The lost are without hope in this world. But Paul says to them that you Receive the gospel with much affliction and joy of the Holy Spirit. There was a wonderful patience of hope in these new believers in Thessalonica. So um, it's a wonderful message for us and I'd urge you to have a bit of a read through um, the Thessalonians uh, as, as we'll continue looking through it. And especially, uh, we're obviously going to talk about issues pertaining to the second coming um, and the rapture as we move through. Praise the Lord. Our Father, we thank you this morning. We praise you and we love you. Thank you for the love you've shown us in Jesus. Thank you, Lord God, for the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is your power unto salvation. We thank you that Romans declares that faith is born in the human heart through the power of that gospel. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Lord, help us to be faithful in spreading the gospel to those who do not know you, that we might see them saved. Lord, give us a burden for the lost. Lord, burden our hearts for the lost. And then help us that we might disciple them to make them strong and faithful believers in your kingdom. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you for listening to this message. You're welcome to duplicate this message in its entirety for non-profit purposes. For more information and resources, visit cgc.org.au.